Hey folks, this is Peter Johnston, tuning in from Salt Lake City, Utah, and speaking into an ice-cold microphone. It's been way too long since my last episode, and I'm laughing because I think I said at the end of that one that y'all should tune in in a week or two for the next episode. <laughs> really funny, I know. It's been something like five months, and I've actually been sitting on an, inter- on an interview for a long time. And I haven't gotten around to publishing it for a few reasons. One of the biggest reasons is that so much has happened. It's just been nuts in terms of all the events of 2020, my moving in and out of college dorms, um, and just feeling overwhelmed a bit with those events. But another thing is that in this conversation with my friend named Wendy, we got into some pretty gritty details about what it means to live as a black woman in Utah. We talk about the LDS church. We talk about the state. We talk about race, politics, all those things that they say you should definitely talk about around the Thanksgiving dinner table. And we somehow always seem to return to on this podcast. <laughs> always. There's only been one episode other than this one. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I was worried about how people might perceive that. I was worried about how people might perceive me and some of my missteps in making this podcast. And I just realized, you know what? This isn't about that. This is about what Wendy has to say. This is supposed to be a platform. That's the name of it. It's supposed to be a place where people can share their stories and all the details that they care to share. So I don't want to hold this back any longer. I want to let the world know Wendy's story, because I think it's really important. So without further ado, I'm going to quiet up, and I'm going to let Wendy introduce herself. Okay, uh, my name is Wendy Joseph. I live in Salt Lake City, Utah. I go to the University of Utah. Um, I'm currently studying political science and international studies with an emphasis in development and sustainability right now. Um, I'm an ambassador for the U, which is really fun. I'm also, my friend and I just founded um, a period organization, so we advocate for menstrual equity in the Salt Lake Valley, um, kind of collect menstrual products that we can give them to underprivileged um, and impoverished locations throughout the valley, which is really awesome. Um, and there's, that's basically my elevator pitch. Boom. I had no idea you did that. What's that group called? It's called Period. Period. yeah so i bet it gets confusing when people ask you about it and they think you're just saying like when you were just saying it i thought you were saying like a statement and then oh period you know (laughs) period (laughs) okay awesome it's just getting on its feet so i'm excited so what year are you in the u um right now i'm a junior sort of um i I've kind of troubleshooted all of my semesters, so I was supposed to graduate with just political science this last year, and then I decided that I kind of, you know, had to unfinished business. There was more I wanted to learn, so I'm, I added international studies, like, right at the tail end of um, this last semester. So I'm a junior, technically, like, in terms of how many years I've been there, but I'm a senior because I can graduate um, in the fall, so. Oh, cool. So you're doing poli-sci, and uh, what do you want to do with that? You've already got that group, period. Do you want to do more with that, or what are your aspirations? Honestly, well, for one thing, obviously, like, it takes money 
to make money. And so it's not like I want to stick with law for the rest of my life, but I want to do law so I can, for one, just have a better understanding of how things kind of work, um, just like from that legal perspective. But also that's going to help put me in a financial position where I can do what I really want to do. Just having some sort of nonprofit organization I think would be fantastic. I would really love to do anything that has to do with global humanitarian aid um, and environmental relief especially. So promoting things like sustainability and all things that have to do with education on climate change and you know how we can basically mitigate that in different areas around the world. That's what I would love to do. So the vibe I kind of get from you is that you grew up reading a lot. You grew up caring about these sorts of issues. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I mean, I guess. I I kind of owe the growing up reading a lot to my parents and my family. That was really just kind of like our means of entertainment. Um, I don't know that I actually started caring about a whole bunch. Of, I just, I, I, I felt like I was passionate about all those things, right? But it wasn't ever something I considered studying until like my senior year. Um, and it was really just after the shooting in Florida um, at Stoneman, Stoneman Douglas High School that like I saw, you know, kids mobilizing and starting March for Our Lives. And I was like, these are kids that are my age. And I feel like if I'm passionate about these things and they're actually creating a historical movement, what am I doing with my time? Um, that's kind of why I got more, I guess, politically and civically involved in other things. Um, just kind of seeing other people my age doing it and recognizing that that's something that I've always been passionate about it so I can actually do something about it. That's awesome. And you grew up uh, you told me just before this interview that you grew up in as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, right? Yeah, that's how I grew up. Um, my parents were converts in Haiti, and then they moved here um, years after they converted. But So my whole family was raised in the church. Um, and obviously, you know, there are things that like, I saw, you know, kids mobilizing and starting March for Our Lives. And I was like, these are kids that are my age. And I feel like if I'm passionate about these things and they're actually creating a historical movement, what am I doing with my time? Seeing other people my age doing it and recognizing that that's something that I've always been passionate about it so I can actually do something about it. That's awesome. And you grew up, uh, you told me just before this interview that you grew up in, as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, right? Yeah, that's how I grew up. Um, my parents were converts in Haiti, and then they moved here um, years after they converted. But so my whole family was raised in the church, um, and obviously, you know, there are things that have like definitely changed with that now. Um, but yeah, definitely raised in the church. So they came from Haiti. Mm -hmm. Wow. When did they uh, arrive? About twenty years ago. Oof. It's a huge, heart-wrenching story I won't even get into, but... Um, How about so the they, nutmeg version? Nutshell. Watered-down version, they ended up in Boston. because um, So we actually, a lot, of Haitian a lot of Haitians will go to the East Coast. So whether that be in Boston, New York, New Jersey, Florida, that's where we have a lot of our family. Um, so they end up in Boston, and then after... Um, they lived in Boston for about a year. They moved to Utah. Um, so we're like the only Haitians in 
you know, the Western United States. But <laughs> yeah, I, I, it was nuts. My freshman year, I met one Haitian outside of my family. Um, really? At, like, at school, and I was blown away because I've never met anyone who's Haitian before, ever. I mean, I mean, I was born in Utah, so it's, I don't know, it's just crazy. I didn't even know they existed outside of Haiti and like the East Coast just because I've literally never come in contact with anyone outside of my family who was Haitian. Yeah. Uh, how, do, how tell me about how that felt like it just was, not knowing any other Haitians well it, that wasn't even much it was just interesting because I, I I mean Utah's one percent of their population is black um so like for me it was almost like that's not necessarily something you think about all the time just because you don't having lived like that your whole life you don't really I guess know any better. Um, but then, like, actually meeting civilization, it was kind of, like, exciting, because I was like, oh, my gosh, like, we're on the map, you know what, you know what I mean? So, um, it was just kind of cool to see that, like, there's more of us that I know about, obviously, <laughs> um, but kind of just coming face-to-face, that was really cool. And obviously, since then, I've met more Haitians outside of my family, but that moment was really awesome. Nice. That's way cool. Um was it, uh, so how old were you, or were you born in Utah? Yeah, I was born in Utah. Okay. And like, have you lived in the same house your whole life? Have you no, moved around in Utah? Around several times, really just around this, like the same neighborhood. But um, I've just grown up in Layton my whole life. I love how you hit that hard T, Layton. Yeah, no, no one else does that. I feel like I can't say Layton. Layton. It's like, I know. It's like, yeah. You can't be one of them, Wendy. Like not intellectual. Like, there's a T there for a reason. <laughs> Mount 10, Layton. So, I mean, growing up in Utah, and like you said, it's, I guess that's the percentage. I don't know off the top of my head. You said like 1%. It's 1%. 1%. That's black population? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, I guess even before uh, going on with Utah, l- let's focus for a sec on the church if you're okay with that. Um, sure. So obviously, protests are all over the country, right? It's 2020. We everyone saw George Floyd get horribly killed, um, and everyone's starting to think about systemic racism, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, did you encounter that in the church? Did you encounter that in Utah? Just go ahead and start rambling talk as much as you want about that sure absolutely i mean first and foremost in the church it's not a secret that like blacks couldn't get the priesthood until 1978 and where a lot of people kind of use that as an example to to show how faithful church members had to be during that time period for someone who grew up in utah and was black and was really the only black family within miles and miles and miles from where i lived um that was incredibly isolating and, and it's still super frustrating to me um, just because I know that that didn't come from a place of anything else outside of racism. That was a racist, that was a racist motiva- motivated policy um, that affected black people for a really long time and it still does because the memory of that is still there. Um, especially coming from a church that professes um, a message that every single person is, you know, equal to not be treated that way for so long, um, really, really takes a toll. Kind of kind of 
makes you wonder whether or not that's actually true, right? And then even just from outside of that, I can, I mean, my parents, my parents especially have had so many different experiences of members treating them horribly because of the color of their skin. And that's just really difficult to hear knowing that I've come face to face with those people in my home ward who, you know, pretend as though they're really caring and really open when I know that they've said some incredibly cross things. I think probably the worst of all the microaggressions um, I've experienced in the church, and it gets me every time, but it's the, it's the, where are you from? I can't take it. It's so frustrating. Yeah. From Layton. I'm from Layton, Utah, born and raised here. Um, and I don't like how it's simply, it speaks to the amount of diversity we have in the state. If you have to ask someone where they're from, because it's not common to see someone who looks like them. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's frustrating because then I'm just like, okay, so clearly you are privileged enough that you don't have to experience living in a place where not every single person lives like you, looks like you. Um, and then it's not just the, where are you from? That gets me. I think what gets me the most is, the follow-up question because when i when i reply with layton it's not believable enough so it's well where are you from originally oh my gosh <laughs> thing in the entire world. it's that it's, it's impossible for you to be from layton <laughs> you can't it's like well you know originally and this is gonna blow your mind i'm from layton utah that's where i was born and raised so i don't really know how to help you um so that's been really frustrating. I just feel like a lot of issues with people of color in the church have been really incredibly swept underneath the rug. I mean, even things like within the doctrine itself, within like the Book of Mormon, when you read things in like Second Nephi that say like, you know, that people with a dark skin are cursed, right? Um, that's reinforced as a kid. Does, does that make sense? Like you're reading those things as a child that people that look like you are cursed um, and are, and that that's a sign of wickedness and that your skin needs to be white. And, you know, and that's, it's just, I don't know. That was a really frustrating thing. I actually, I posted something about on Instagram recently because the, one of the scriptures in second Nephi about 20 chapters after that says, um, you know, like everyone is beautiful in the eyes of God. And then it says that, it says the classic, like, black and white, bond and free, male and female, all that kind of thing. Right. I know which one you're talking about. <laughs> Everyone's been posting that scripture um, as some sort of, you know, beacon of their beliefs that they believe in the fact that black people are equal. Um, and I kind of posted a count of things to that. But I was like, recognize that, yeah, that's a beautiful scripture. But this scripture came 20 chapters before that. This is the precedent that was set. So it's really difficult to take this wonderful sentiment, you know, to heart when I know that in the same book from the same source, it says some very contradictory stuff regarding black people um, and darker skin. And someone was telling me how that's not, you know, how it's actually just a symbolic thing, right? And how people take that scripture to too literally, that it's not actually talking about black people. And I'm like, that may be true. But if we're criticizing people for looking at that scripture literally, then we can't look at the other scripture that says black and white, male and female, bond and free, literally as well. It's the same respect. You can't wow. pick and yeah. choose when it's a literal translation. Um, 
when it suits you and it makes you comfortable. Does that make sense? And that was kind of my argument there. But um, that's really been my experience in the church is just kind of just with whether it be from reading the scriptures or being just going to church and not looking like everyone else and having automatically every single eye turn and look at you like you're in the wrong place, you know? Um, it's been incredibly otherizing. So then how do you navigate it? I don't anymore. <laughs> um, honestly, I just, I think it got to really, I mean, this wasn't even centered around just being black in the church, but just with other issues that I just took a lot of issue with that I'm like, I think for right now we're going on sabbatical and it served me well for right now, honestly, because I'm like, I, I just, there are so many issues that are very, very prevalent within, um, not even just so prevalent within the culture that I take issue with, um, that are contradictory to things that I think matter, if that makes sense. Um, and so for a long time, I think navigating it had to do with just laughing along with people. I mean, man, the, the elders quorum president was one of the most racist individuals I have ever known in my entire life. Um, and he was beloved by like, the bishop. And it was super annoying because he was a young man, incredibly rambunctious and obnoxious and just, for lack of a better word, annoying. Um, and would always tell the most racist jokes. And I mean, every single time I asked him to stop, it just didn't matter. Um, because he was, you know, the ward's golden boy. So it didn't matter. Um, and his mom was at the time, my young woman president. So it didn't matter. You know, it's, it's just, it's things like that. Yeah. It's like, oh, just not, not having your voice be heard and being ignored for so long. And if, you know, you bring up issues like you bring up issues that have to do with you being frustrated with the church's controversial history when it comes to blacks. Um, it's always, it's always, the response is always negative in that it's like, well, you're being angry now and you <laughs> should have had more faith and you need to have faith that that was what needed to happen. And right. Then, it's on you, not on us. Yeah. And I think yeah. telling someone to have faith through their oppression, um, when the institution they're a part of is doing the oppressed thing is incredibly manipulative. Um, and really that's kind of been my experience. It's been what's really distanced me from the church um, for the last couple years, just cause I, I can't, that's no longer something I can compartmentalize. If that makes sense. It totally does. Yeah. Well, and it's not only, the church, right? But it's also the state in which it's anchored, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, going back to that statistic you brought up, 1% in Utah, I'm sure growing up in elementary, junior high, high school, and even in college, uh, you want to talk for a sec about that too? Was it a similar experience? Uh, how was it different, you know, or similar? Yeah. I think I experienced, it's, it's funny, you experience it in different stages, in different ways. Um, when I was little, actually, most of the racism I experienced came from adults, um, adults who were my teachers, right, who capitalized on the fact that I, as a child, don't know any better, 
um, and probably won't recognize that what they're saying or they're doing to me is racist. So like, for example, um, I skipped a grade. Like I said, my parents really, really, really valued education as a kid. So four of us skipped a grade in my family of seven kids. Um, And it was primarily because my parents taught us how to read when we were incredibly young. So I remember before I had even skipped a grade, they had to give, they gave me special packets of books that I could take home so that I wouldn't be bored in class, if that makes sense. Wow. Which at the time I didn't recognize was not normal. I just thought that was, I thought it was because the teacher liked me. So I was like, oh, this is great. She's blessing me with books that I get to take home every day um, and then bring back. But, you know, now I know better. But um, I remember my librarian in second grade, I was supposed to be, you know, reading I was reading at a really, really high level, so I was supposed to be reading different books. And my brain in second grade um, told me that I could only read out of the kindergarten section because I couldn't handle anything outside of that. I couldn't handle any of the other books. Um, and I remember just being like, oh, well, she's just confused, you know? Um, she clearly doesn't know. So I was telling her, I was like, no, actually, like, I, I, I'm supposed to be reading these, you know, the books on the other side of the library, which were the more advanced books. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to explain this to her and she wasn't understanding in my head. I was like, Oh, she just, you know, she clearly just doesn't understand. Um, and it caught to me like going home and telling my mom, like, cause my mom was getting frustrated because I was bringing home like tiny little books that I would finish, you know, in like, like a half hour, the Bob books supposed to be bringing home, you know, like where are the, where are the real books? Cause she would right. check. And I was like, well, the librarian won't let me check anything else outside of the kindergarten section. So my mom would like write me notes so I could take them to um, school and explain to the librarian, like, this is a note from my mom saying that I have to read outside of the kindergarten section. And she still wouldn't listen to me. And then finally I talked to my mom. She's like, she's not listening. I don't know why. And my mom was like, okay, well, next time you have, you go to library, get your teacher to go with you. And so I did that, got my teacher who's, you know, a white woman, red hair, beautiful. And I brought her, and I remember the librarian, like, she explained to the librarian that I, that, you know, I was right, that I'm supposed to be reading on the other side of the library, getting those more advanced books. And the librarian screamed at her. She screamed at both of us. And she was like, fine, if you want to read in these books that she can't handle, fine. Good night. And, like, like, finally gave me the pass. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is great. How gracious of her. Um, cause I just didn't understand, didn't know any better at that time. Right. So it's been, it was, she was, I don't know. It's just, it was just frustrating because, and that was just one instance of many where specifically adults are capitalizing on the fact that I don't know any better as a kid, you know, and it's my own innocence that protected me from saying anything or doing anything. Um, and that was more, that was my elementary experience kind of dealing with adults being, incredibly impressive and then in junior high and high school really it was trying to navigate how learning how to laugh at racist jokes um because if i were to speak out against them and kind of explain that that's offensive then it was me who couldn't take a joke or it was me who was being aggressive right it was i remember i was being i was really involved in theater i loved theater growing up and not understanding why any role that I played had to be played with black sass, quote unquote, um, and how I needed to be more sassy in those roles. I needed to be loud. I needed to be angry and mean. And I just, I felt like 
my junior high and high school experience was really me trying to assume the role that everyone, you know, presumed that I would just take. Um, there's this quote my friend told me that was like, I am not what I think I am. I am not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. So in my head, because everyone, does that make any sense? That I speak yeah, let, let, let me think on that for a sec. I am what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. Okay, I, I think I'm starting to get it. Uh, explain it a little bit. Sure, so I'm not, I am not whatever I think myself to be, right? So if I think myself to be some, if I think myself to be, let's say, an engineer, right? I'm not an engineer. I am not what you think me to be if you think me to be some sort of computer scientist, right? Right. But if I think that you think that I am a handmaid, I am a handmaid, and I will assume that role. Does that make sense? Wow, and did that... Do you agree with that? An obvious no, I don't at all. But it's really, I mean, if you think about it, that's how a lot of us go about our daily relations, especially in that age when we're trying to navigate how to make friends, how to be popular and what's important, what's not, how to be ourselves and all that. Um, and recognizing that what people expected me to be was some sort of dramatic, sassy, you know, aggressive woman. Yeah. And like if I wanted to appease the people for any reason or you know make friends that I had to be that person because if I were to be myself it would be unexpected and it would be out of character um so trying to assume that role and navigate that while also knowing and going home that like I'm not being myself I'm not being true to myself but not knowing how to break that shell if I've assumed that role for so long does that make sense yeah it does um, so I think that was really my high, my junior high and high school experience was honestly junior high was learning how to laugh at racist jokes and brush it off like it was, you know, normal. And then high school, I think my junior is when I really started to kind of speak out that I was like, I don't like it that any time I'm showing any sort of emotion, I'm automatically considered mean or dramatic. Like if I dissent to anything, it was always you're being dramatic or you're being sassy or you're being so mean. And I remember like after my junior year is when I just started cutting friends out of my life. It was like, you're not a true friend of mine when I specifically asked you to just recognize that I'm allowed to feel emotion and not be some sort of black sassy woman. I can't stand those words. I hate it when people say that you're dramatic or sassy just because you have emotion, you know, and that's pretty mature of you for, uh, for a high schooler. Cutting people uh, out, you know, and just saying, sorry, I got to take care of myself. Wow. I mean, it really just got to a point where, you know, you're just tired. Like, you're just like, I, if this is, it wasn't at that point, like, this is not, this is not what I signed on for, you know? But I'm like, if I, I don't want to be like this for the rest of my life. I don't want to have to think about what other people think of me for the rest of my life. And if I don't want that for the rest of my life, I better start now so I can get the hang of it when it comes down to it. And so... I'm grateful for myself then, though it was difficult to start doing that, you know, and kind of really standing up for myself. Then I'm grateful because it's equipped me now to use that voice um, that I kept, you know, hidden for so long to advocate and to educate people and to really stand up for myself and stand up for others who look like me and who experience the same sort of things, um, the same sort of microaggressions, the same sort of racial slurs the same sort of 
just racial oppression in general um, and kind of just say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to take that anymore. And it served me well. I mean, like, I can use my voice at the protests and I don't feel like I'm being too loud, that I'm taking up too much space. Yeah. I mean, like, the more space I take up, the louder I am, the better. So, right. And that's one of the first times it sounds like in your life where that's been the case. It's honestly, I, it's, I don't know. It's, it's just, it, it's so interesting. I've never seen, never, never in my life would I think in, in Utah, we'd have a protest for Black Lives Matter. It's just not, it's literally unprecedented. And so yeah. it's been incredible kind of going out and not even just seeing that, but this is what's interesting is that the statistic, yes, there's 1% um, of the population that are black in Utah, which means just statistically and logically, people who are showing up at these protests, um, they're going to be primarily non-people of color, whether that be, you know, white people or people who are outside of the black community specifically. And that's what's been incredibly gratifying to me to see is that while that was something that was incredibly isolating in the past, it's now almost being used as a tool that's like people who don't, who never experienced what I've had to experience my in my entire life or choosing to educate themselves on it and actually speak out on it and using their privilege as a platform to do that. That's never happened before. Hmm. Um, so it's really, really interesting to kind of see that turn around. Yeah. And do you think it's like a promising thing? Um, I was actually talking to my friend about that and my siblings, you know, I think that's what scares me the most about it is that it's great right now because, you know, I feel like it's gained a lot of momentum. I am fearful for the day that it loses momentum because I feel like it's going to be like anything else that like the media covers this for a certain amount of time and it fizzles, fizzles out. Right. And then no one pays attention to it and it's on to the next thing. Um, and I'm hoping that with things like this, right, where people are choosing to educate themselves, that it doesn't lose momentum, right? That maybe we're not marching the streets every day, but people of, you know, white people um, and people of privilege are still using their platforms, you know, to advocate for racial equity and equality within the state and in the workplace, in church, wherever it may be. And so... I don't know, like, obviously, it's kind of difficult gauging whether or not the posts on Instagram and Twitter and everything are genuine and whether people are not people are doing this because they are actually concerned or whether they're doing it because it's the most popular thing to do right now. Right. Um, and honestly, you can sort of weed those people out if you follow, if you're just looking. But I guess that's not a, it's really not really any of my concern either way it's frustrating sure and i wish people weren't using this as a publicity stunt and an optics sort of thing but it's kind of you know it's basically going to be like anything else people will do what they do and it's frustrating sure but i can only control myself and so you know as long as i'm not losing momentum while it is tiring let me tell you racial battle fatigue is so real and yeah just mentally and emotionally it's physically and socially exhausting to well, protest every day and to go on Instagram and see these things every day and explain to people and teach people and do all these things because it's so much responsibility that you shouldn't have to take but it's that you that you're doing anyway does that make sense it does and I mean 
I can't even really imagine it, you know, because I've even in the more diverse places I've lived, like, for instance, I served a mission in Louisiana. You know, I was in New Orleans and Baton Rouge uh, that had many people of color, you know, uh, from the Latinx community, from the black community. But even in Los Angeles, where um, like the high school I went to, there were still a lot of people that looked like me. And I can't imagine living in a place where almost no one looks like you, where Mm -hmm. the only time you meet someone who is Haitian, you know, or is from your background is in, what did you say it was in college? That was my freshman year of college. Yeah. Yeah, That's, that's unbelievable to me. And I can't imagine that. And so it it sounds like it's almost inescapable. So then like, how have you uh, dealt with that? How do you, what does it take for you uh, to help you get going and keep going? past those roadblocks yeah i mean i think it's with anything like this like i said um this is something that i'm passionate about right this is something that i want to i want to divulge my energy into um and i think also knowing that knowing that if it's kind of that concept that it's like if not if not me who right if not now when um then i'm like there are people who are counting on strong people of color to say something you know and like i i feel like i almost owe it to i owe it to two different groups of people one those who come those who come before me right who have basically paved the way for me to do anything that i do in my life like the fact that i can the fact that i can go to school and not be the only person of color in that school is incredible you know and the fact that i can just go to church or you know drink out of a drinking fountain or swim in a public swimming pool like all of those things that are now what we would consider privileges because people actually had to die for me to get here to get to this point so I owe it to those people to keep going and then also I owe it to the people who come after me to keep going because I don't know how things are going to be for them but I want them to be better than they are for me um so whatever it takes basically wow you're a pioneer (laughs) We'll see. Yeah, in your own way. Uh, so obviously it's an issue that goes way past policing. Have you ever had problems, though, with police? Um, personally, I haven't had many. Obviously, I, you know, it's always in the back of my head. That's something I'm fearful of. Um, I think the thing that scares me the most is that, I, I mean, I have three brothers, and so they've had different run-ins with the police that have been, just terrible, like in nature, um, just to, just to think about just scary. Um, just, I just don't, I feel like I will never be able to understand the automatic distrust, um, or mistrust of people of color when it comes to some police. And honestly, I actually had the opportunity, my family had the opportunity to talk to the Layton police department yesterday, um, about this issue and kind of talk about what we want to see, um, in the next, you know, coming, weeks coming months coming years in terms of the movement and so there are some good that's the thing is that like there is good out there the Layton police department i think honestly just from their the conversation that we had like the fact that they even made the effort to reach out to they reached out to my little brother um who was passing out water bottles to policemen during the protests and um the fact that like they even reached out meant something and at first i was skeptical i thought it was going to be another PR stunt like an optics thing but you know they actually talked to us and they were really 
really curious to know what we thought of everything and how they can do better as a, as a police department. And that's not right. the same for every single one. Um, there are obviously police departments that are not as, not as, you know, progressive in the movement when it comes to black lives matter. Um, and are not, and not as humble, not as willing to kind of come to terms with their own mistakes. Um, but that kind of gave me hope that if at least one in the state of Utah is kind of, you know, more mindful of their own actions and what they can do to be better, hopefully they can stand as an example to other police departments that they actually can be police and be human beings and be empathetic um, and be in support of the movement as well. Do you personally support the defund the police movement? Um, after a conversation, there, I think I need to educate myself more on exactly what defund the police entails. Um, after a conversation yesterday, in order to get things like more de-escalation tactic training, right, um, in order to mandate that for every single officer, in order to require things like licensing, in order to be a police, and like certification, in order to fund things like body cameras you need funding and so it's there's cognitive dissonance there because it's not like it's not as though i'm supporting funding for more more riot gear more assault rifles more you know um weaponry for police departments but i also know that it it's the same pool you still need money in order to get the good things that we want Um, that's a really good point yeah I think it's not that I want to defund the police, but allocating the funds correctly, um, I think is where I stand on that. That's a really well thought out response. Didn't (laughs) even think of that. Yeah, that's cool. Interesting. Um, So I guess the two more questions I've got, both relating to the future going forward, do you, could you ever, and going back also, to to the topic of the church what would have to change in your mind or what would have to happen in order for you to kind of come back the way that you were back into the fold i guess i don't think it would be a change on my part um i just don't what there are too many systemic issues i think ingrained in church culture and in some ways church church doctrine that I don't, I'm no, I'm no longer willing to compartmentalize. Um, and I'll be incredibly open. I revere the LGBTQ community. Um, and I think they've experienced far too much discrimination in church policy that I cannot come to terms with. Um, in my mind, for love is love, period. And I don't find especially I was talking to this to my friend the other day, but like, I just, I don't, not the other day, today I was talking to my friend about it. I don't know that if we can, I don't know that someone else can put a definition on what is love. Um, and I just don't support that. Um, sorry, my roommates are being super loud. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of like, my thing is one of the issues. And then honestly, I don't really think that men and women are, cons- are may they may be considered equal, but I don't think they're treated equally. And so that was the other issue. It, it's just been a long, I guess, kind of like a long sum of things. And honestly, I feel like I'm more of a pantheist at heart that anything that motivates you to do good is 
worth having in your life and I'm not qualified and I'm not interested in telling anyone who believes anything different than what I believe that what they believe is wrong or incomplete. Um, that's not any of my business. If it motivates you to do good, I think there's beauty in that and keep at that really, if it makes you happy, if it motivates you to do good. And so I think it's not going to be a change for my part. If there's anything that's going to change, it's going to be being more accepting and more tolerant of communities that are different from the norm in order for me to be more accepting if that makes sense to go back to a fold yeah the fold would have to change to be more welcoming sure yeah i've been thinking about that and uh i wasn't even really planning on asking you much about this but that's something i've been thinking about a lot too uh and i'm in a similar boat where and my friends are too where it's just um it's not just the the racism but it's all the issues that you've talked about right the lgbtq community some misogyny that really seems to be interwoven into the fabric of everything and um i just am really interested in hearing stories from people like you who have felt pushed away even despite your efforts of trying to be in, you know? And I just think it's really cool. I got to say, like going back to the high school example you gave, you cut out what wasn't the things that, and the people who weren't really accepting you, you know, I'm not Mm -hmm. just this stereotype you have of me, you know, I'm not just black sassy woman. I'm, you know, like from what I know about you, you're really intellectual and you're focused on these political things, movements you know, and you've got period in these other groups. I think that's really cool. Um, so then going forward, what are, are some of the things that keep motivating you? You mentioned focusing on people from the past, focusing on people in the future. Is there anything else? Um, I really think that's it. Honestly, just knowing that, I mean, I'm fighting for myself. I'm fighting for my ability to not fear leaving my house. I'm fighting for my brothers who we'll probably have more run-ins with the police if no things change. And I mean, the fact that, by the way, yes, 1% of the population in Utah is black, but 10% of lethal police killings are also black. That is wow. the comparison of any state in the country. So when it comes to that, Utah is actually the worst state when it comes to police killings of black individuals. And so... Not even just people of color, but specifically black people. Black individuals. Wow. And so it's, it's, that's a horrible statistic. And so honestly, like, it's not dramatic or reaching for me to say like, yeah, I'm act- I'm genuinely fighting for my life because if I don't, at one point, my brother is going to be a part of that statistic. My dad is going to be a part of that statistic, or I could be a part of that statistic. And I refuse to let that happen. That's awesome. Or would you ever leave Utah? Yeah, absolutely. Are you kidding? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Where would you go? Where would you go? If I could go anywhere, I mean, that opens up the table. But I, there's just so much I haven't seen. Like I said, I've grown up in Utah my entire life. And there's, I've, been to the east coast once before 
and every other surrounding I've been to California twice now the first time I went was my freshman year of college like I just haven't seen anything there's just so much I want to see the fact that the fact that there are you know like I, I want to go to myself actually my brother served a mission in the south as well he served in Jackson Mississippi but he went to Monroe um several times um that was his area and he's been trying to get us to go to the south because he just says like there's just a different energy there totally um, is different so knowing cool. that like you're walking the same roads that like slaves walked which can be something incredibly harrowing but also very humbling at the same time because you know that you know like look how far we've come so i just want i, I want to see everything i want to go everywhere um yeah i don't know i'm excited you should be you got a great future ahead of you so um i guess do you have any like anything any thought you'd like to close on maybe a piece of advice for you know people who don't share your experience as a person of color people who might look like more like me sure i mean for you use this platform use this platform to elevate voices i know that you said you wanted to educate yourself which is great but if we're inviting people of color to really kind of speak their truth this needs to be this movement is going anywhere this needs to be about them the focal point needs to be not on how can i educate how can i use these voices to educate myself it needs to be how can i use this privilege that i have this platform that i have to elevate their voices right to put them in the spotlight because that's what this is about this is really about highlighting the people who have been oppressed for so long so if i have advice for anyone it's recognize that you are in a point of you are incredibly privileged right now um whether you're white or just a non-person of color you are incredibly incredibly privileged to be where you are in this moment and though it may feel uncomfortable for you and like you may feel you may be experiencing guilt for everything that's going on sit in that guilt sit in that discomfort and feel that to its capacity because that's what's going to motivate you to do something that's what's going to motivate you to use that privilege and turn around and help the other guy. Um, and I think that's what's going to be most important is people who are privileged, who've never experienced depression in the same way that black people and people of color have experienced depression, to use their privilege as a platform for educating other people um, and for elevating black voices and people of color. Thanks for saying that. And that's what I want this to be. You know, even though it is gonna educate me and other people in the process i'm thinking about naming it the the platform so it's not like a soapbox but it's supposed to elevate others voices you know yeah cool uh thanks yeah thanks for having me let me end the recording right there that's the end of today's podcast thanks so much for tuning in and i hope that you enjoyed it if you or somebody you know has something interesting to say please don't hesitate to reach out. I'm looking for interesting stories from anyone, anywhere. And I would love to get them out there on the airwaves. So thank you. Stay safe. Stay sane. Don't hit the election parties too hard. And let's make the end of this year one to remember in the best of ways. <laughs>